0: I want to make sure that I, uh, again, t- uh, tell you about Easter weekend. It's just a couple weeks away. It comes early this year. It's at the end of March. Uh, it's about two weeks from now, and so we want to make sure that you guys feel uh, more than welcome to join us. Uh, we'd even love it if you'd invite a friend or two. Uh, it'll be a special weekend, and so we're really looking forward to getting to celebrate that as a community together. We've been in this series called The God That I Wish You Knew, and it's been a lot of fun for me to get to talk about all of these different names and identities of God, to get to think about just who this God is that we worship. Uh, and I think it's a really important thing for us to do on occasion to think about just who this God is. Because uh, as our vision says, we want to be able to love God, to love our neighbors, and to love our world. And so it's important to know just who it is that we're loving. So the first week we talked about God as our father. Uh, and I love the story of the prodigal son, and it's one that's so important to our faith, to, to knowing who this God is. Uh, and it's this God who, who seeks us, who runs after us, who who's on the lookout for us and, and runs out to meet us. And so I love getting to talk about that story. And last week, we talked about the fact that God is a big God, and that no matter what's going on in our lives, that God can hold it in his hands, that, that the problems, the issues, the things that come up in our lives, the, the unexpected things, God's big enough to take care of those things. And so this week, uh, we're going to continue talking about who this God is, and I want us to think about it in the, in the sense of the fact that uh, this is a God who matters in the here and now, that God matters for our lives today. And this is something that that we know, uh, but a lot of times it can be a temptation for us to think about the future, about the the, the later, the then, uh, and and to focus on that more than we focus on the here and now. But this is uh, is something the Christian story talks about a lot. It's something that the the story of the Bible talks about, is that God matters today. He matters here and now. Uh, And and for for many times, whenever we think of what's going on here and now, what's going on today, one of the responses that the Christian community has, uh, can have to that, is, is actually one that they've taken, that we've taken uh, in the past couple of years, especially. And it's, it's kind of a sad response in a lot of ways. Whenever something happens that that we see as Christians and that we disagree with or that we dislike or that is uncomfortable to us, a lot of times our reaction is actually to to move out of that, to step away, to, to take a step backwards away from that. Uh, sometimes in the midst of that, we actually take a step back and we point the finger and, and place the blame with somebody. Uh, and that's actually not the, the reaction that the Christian story calls us to have. And it, I think in the first couple of weeks, we've seen how God actually invites us into those moments, that God is a God who runs out to meet us. Even in the midst of, of our brokenness, even in the midst of our sin, he runs out to greet us, to welcome us home and to throw us a party. He's a God that's holding the world in his hands, the, the problems, uh, the good things, all of it. He's holding it in his hands. And so the response is not to take a step back, but it's actually to enter into it. And so uh, when I was trying to figure out what to call this tendency that we, we might have from time to time to, to step out of things, uh, the word cynicism came to mind. It's a word uh, that you probably are well aware of. It's one that if you get on Facebook uh, that is sure to cross you, you know, you're sure to become a cynic if you see what people are posting on Facebook and all the different things that are going on there. Uh, but not just on Facebook, but in, in all of life, uh, we have this tendency to take a step back and to point the finger. And when we do that, we actually engage in cynicism. Uh, I really like the way that one of our contemporary philosophers of the day talks about this. His name uh, is Slavoj Zizek, so uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right or not. But he, he says that cynicism to, in today's culture is, is the perverted negation of the negation. Uh, so when we uh, as Christians see something that we don't like, when we see something that, uh, that we disagree with or, or something like that, and we take this step back, we, we step away from it, we see the brokenness, and we actually say, you know what, I'm not going to be a part of that. Uh, it's, too, it's too much, it's too bad, I can't handle it, I can't fix it, I can't enter into it. And, and we take a step back. And when we do that, we actually see the brokenness of the world, and we just say, that's too bad. It, it's too much. We can't fix it. And I think it's a great temptation uh, in many different aspects of life, in many different areas of our life, to, to do this, to do just this. Uh, but for the Christian, it's not the way that we're called to live or to operate in the world. Uh, last week, we, we talked briefly about the moment in, in Israel's history when they leave Egypt, when God calls them out and Moses leads them out. Uh, and, and as they're going, uh, they encounter problem after problem. And, and do you remember what they say every time they encounter one of these problems? When they get to the Red Sea and the Egyptians are closing in, when when they figure out that they don't have any food or water in the wilderness, when they get to the promised land and they figure out, we can't possibly take this, Their response is one of cynicism. God, it would have been better if we had just stayed in Egypt. Yeah, it was bad in Egypt, but it's worse here. We don't want to, we don't want to engage in what's worse, what we think is worse. We'd rather be in Egypt where at least we know that they're going to feed us. At least we know that we have a home. It might not be a great one, but we've got one. It's this negation of the negative. And it happens throughout the story of the people of Israel. It happens over and over again. Uh, it's this woe is me. The world is too bad. It's too awful. I wish it were different, but I can't do anything to change it. For those of us who read the story today, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? So as we read that story, as we, as we think about what it means for the people of Israel to encounter these problems, we actually get the opportunity to see that God is at work in this people, that God is at work amongst, uh, amongst the people of Israel. He's providing for them over and over again. Every time that one of these problems comes up, God is there, To help them. God is there to provide for them. God is there to take care of them. So often when we read that story, we think, man, if they could have just understood, if they could have just gotten it, if they could have just known who this God that they were following and worshiping was. But we have some of the same tendencies, some of the same responses at times, that whenever things get bad, we take a step back, and we might even point the finger and place the blame. See, the story of God's people is, is, is telling a different story. God wants to tell a different story through his people, through his church today. And it's a story not of, of backing away. It's not a story of placing the blame or, or, or of engaging in cynicism. It's a story uh, that is healing and restoration. It's a story where God wants to make things whole and complete again. And so this morning, we're going to be spending some time in the book of Jeremiah. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. We'll be in Jeremiah chapter 18. It's a very familiar passage for those of us who have grown up in or around churches. uh, But it is a very wonderful passage that tells us a lot about who this God is that we're worshiping, this God that we're trying to follow. Uh, And so Jeremiah is this prophet. And he is uh, living in this uh, Israel, the people, the nation of Israel has been exiled, but the nation of Judah is still uh, very much alive and around. And so Jeremiah is this prophet who's, who's been called by God to go and prophesy to this people. And so uh, he actually has the opportunity to prophesy throughout a, quite a bit of social and political change within the country, uh, within the nation of Judah. Uh, when he begins his, his ministry, his prophesying, he's actually prophesying uh, during Josiah's reign. And if you know about Josiah, Josiah was a righteous king. He was a good king. He was, in fact, one of the best kings of Judah. He, uh, a, he enabled the people to follow the law again. He found uh, the, the book of uh, of the law, and he gave it back to the people. And he encouraged them. He he reformed uh, the religious aspect of the nation of Judah and called them back to worshiping God. But shortly after jo, uh, Jeremiah begins prophesying, Josiah actually dies. And uh, the following kings, the next set of kings that come after him, are all evil kings. They do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and for several of them, they only do it for a couple of months before they're gone. Uh, I think the first king after Josiah, he only is around. He's only king for three months and then they have another king after him. Uh, This is a a period where there's a lot of changes happening, a lot of things going on. And Jeremiah has been called by God into this context, into so much change and upheaval, into so many uh, things that are going wrong to prophesy to the people, to the nation of Judah. And so in Jeremiah chapter 18, I love this passage because God uh, gives this wonderful image of what it looks like to be God's people and to come back to God. Uh, So starting in verse 1, this is what it says. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. And so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. And then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel." If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended to do for it. God has a plan for his people, and his people have not been following that plan, right? Right? We see this happen over and over again, especially as we read throughout the prophets. Uh, God comes before the people and he gives them an an option. He says, you have the opportunity to either come back to me, to follow me, or to continue in your evil ways. And let me tell you, if you do that, if you choose that option, if you continue to doing the things that you're already doing, the evil that, that I see, disaster is coming, destruction is coming. See, this is not God pronouncing, uh, he, he, he can't. he's not sitting there waiting to pronounce judgment on the people. He can't, he's just sitting there like, oh, I'm going to get them this time. This is God actually giving the people another opportunity, another chance to come back to him, because God doesn't want this for his people. God doesn't want to destroy them. He doesn't want uh, to make the nation go into exile. He doesn't want that. He wants his people to turn back to him. And so he comes before them and he says, uh, please come back to me. Look at what the potter does when, when this pot is broken or when it's not uh, doing the things that it needs to. The potter reforms it and reshapes it. That's what I want to do for you. And so God is not an angry God. He's not up there just like plotting to get his people. Uh, this is a God who's trying to have his people turn back to him. He's giving them a second chance, another opportunity. And, and so I love what happens next because God, uh, we actually see some of the, uh, the deep, heartfelt emotion that God has for his people in the very next verse. Uh, in verse 11, God says, Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But look at what they say. It's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. Do you see the cynicism? Do you see the fact that they've given up hope? It's not just that uh, the situation is bad, but it's that it's hopeless. It's that there's nothing else that they can do except just continue in their ways, just continue to do the things that they know that will only bring disaster and harm to them. It's no use. This is our only option, is to just stay the way we are. And notice, too, that the people even acknowledge that what they're doing is evil. Uh, Each one of us will just keep doing our own evil thing. We're too far gone. God can't possibly save us. God can't possibly come in to this situation and make it better. We see this play out over and over again in the people of of the Bible, in the story of the Bible. Throughout the prophets, especially uh, maybe you've heard the story of Jonah and kind of spent some time thinking about that story. We see this play out even in that story. God comes to Jonah and he, he tells Jonah to go to actually the people of Nineveh, who are not people of God, who are not Israelites. And he says, go to this people and call them to repent, call them to turn to me call them to do the things that I want for them. But Jonah doesn't want to do it. He runs away. God eventually brings him back and, and he sends him to Nineveh. And Jonah preaches like the worst sermon you've ever heard. It's like six words and it's repent or God's going to kill you or something like that. Uh, it's not a good sermon, but it's effective. Um, the people of Nineveh turn to God. They change their ways. And look, what, look, what, look at what Jonah does. He's angry with God. He's upset. He throws a temper tantrum. He's sitting under this, uh, this vine and and the vine eventually goes away too. And, and Jonah is just mad at God. God, why would you do this? How could you possibly uh, save this people? How could you turn it from your, from the evil that you had planned against them? And this is the, this is what God says. How could you possibly be angry with me? Because God is not a God who wants to destroy. He's not a God who wants to give disaster. He's a God who wants the people's hearts to be changed to be transformed, to become his people. And so with Jonah, with Jeremiah, with the rest of the story of the Old Testament, over and over again, we see this same thing play out, that God wants for his people to be changed, to be transformed, to truly become his people. But over and over again, they have this cynical, negative response. God, it's no use. God, will just keep doing evil. God, you can't actually save us. It's interesting, uh, in the ancient world, uh, cynicism was, has been around for forever. In the ancient world, the cynics were actually people that, wa- uh, many people wanted to be like the cynics. They were a very revered group of people. Uh, in, in the ancient world, cynics uh, were people who looked to the, the pleasures of this world and said that that wasn't enough to sustain them. That the things that this world had to offer, whether it was wealth or power uh, prestige, whatever it was, the pleasures of this world could not satisfy the heart, and the only way to satisfy the heart was by living the virtuous life, was by doing internal things to make sure that you were taking care of yourself. And, and so, cynicism today looks very different because cynicism today says uh, the pleasures of this world can't satisfy; they're not uh, they're not worth it. That we shouldn't follow after them, uh, but there's nothing out there that can. It's the negation of what's already negative. And so cynicism today looks very different from cynicism in the ancient world. But even cynicism back then didn't realize the sto- what the story of God was trying to say. That the story of God is actually something better than that. It's actually not that we ourselves can, can fix our world, can make ourselves happy, or, or, or can live the virtuous life on our own, but actually that God is the one who does it with, among, and for us. And so uh, when in Jeremiah 18, when God says turn back. I'm planning an evil. I'm planning a disaster for you, so turn. That's a very important word in this this passage. It's a very important word in the the entire Bible, because God is calling his people not to stay the way they are, but to do a complete turnaround, to come back to God, just like as the prodigal son does with his father, to, to realize what they have done, and to turn around and go home. Because remember, this is a God that's on the lookout for us, This is a God who can't wait to run out and meet us and welcome us back home. And so God is calling his people in Judah to do the same. He's calling his people all throughout Scripture to turn to him, to come back to him, to be his people. And so this morning, uh, since we're talking about God as the potter, I've got ahead and, and included some pots on stage for us this morning. Uh, this first pot that I have is in shambles, and it wasn't really intended to be that way. Uh, I just kind of broke it, and uh, so that's what it is. Um, but uh, no, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what stage of life the people of God are in, this is the truth that God wants for his people, that whether we're broken and in pieces like this, whether we've just got a little bit of a hole, whether we think we're, we're mostly put together, we're just barely missing it, God wants for us to be complete, to be whole, to be filled, to be able to be useful, to be used for his purposes. And this is what this story tells us, that God is not just one who's going to just automatically make us like this, but that he's going to be intimately involved. He's going to be the one who's at the potter's wheel, turning the wheel, making, forming the pot, forming the clay into who he's created us to be. You see, God's goal for the world is not for it to be a world that falls apart, not for it to be a world where we see the negative, where we see what's going on that we don't like and to back away from it. God's goal, his plan, his dream for the world has always been to enter into it and to make it whole again. You see, ever since the fall, uh, since we learn of sin entering into the world, this has been God's plan. His dream for the world is for it to come back to wholeness, to come back and be made whole again. Uh, Too often the stereotype of Christianity is that we are a people uh, who aren't transformed, that we're a people who are hypocritical, judgmental. And I really like the way that Dallas Willard describes this. He says that it's basically barcode faith. He says this is what Christianity has come to. Uh, It's the suggestion that the change that makes a person Christian, whatever that is, may be totally undetectable from the human point of view. Only God's scanner can detect it. Apparently, that is Christianity now. That somehow we have made this, uh, not about us entering into the world, not about God entering into the world to, to transform it, to change it, to make it whole again, but somehow the change that happens is only detectable to God. That somehow God is going to scan it in the then and later, but for today, it doesn't actually make that much of a difference. But the story that we've inherited, the story of Christianity is so much more than that. It's a story where we're not broken and in shambles, but where we're made whole again, where we're transformed into the people that God has created us to be. And so I heard a story uh, several years ago about a woman uh, named Mary Johnson, and she lives in Minnesota, and Mary Johnson has a very tragic story because when her only son turned 16, he he attended a party with some of his friends, and, and her son was tragically murdered that night and Mary Johnson's life was forever changed because at that moment Mary wanted what any of us would want she wanted justice she wanted the person who had done this uh, to pay the price to to know that he he was languishing for his evil for the thing that he had done and so uh, she you know obviously went through the court proceedings and everything and, and the man who killed her son was another young gentleman another young man by the name of Oshea Israel he was 16 too and he was tried and convicted and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And Mary thought that that was going to be enough. She thought that that would make her happy, that that would repay the evil that had been done. But over the course of the years, Mary realized something. She realized that even though she wasn't the one who was in prison, she was just as much behind bars as O'Shea was. That her story, her life had gone on this trajectory that had led her to a life of bitter resentment, of hatred, and she knew that since she was a Christian, that she needed to find a better way, that she knew the story of God, and so she needed to let go, to forgive. And so, after 17 years of O'Shea being in prison, she began to visit him. And the first time that she went, she said that her goal was not anything extraordinary, it wasn't anything special. She just wanted to begin the process of letting go. Begin the process of forgiveness. But she said that when she finally went to go visit him, 17 years later she realized that it wasn't just her who needed forgiveness. It was O'Shea as well. See, they were both shackled by what had had happened. They had both experienced this horrible tragedy uh, at at his hands, and they both realized that what they needed more than anything else was for God's transformative power to change who they were, to change their story. And so Mary eventually forgave O'Shea, but she didn't stop there. Because a few months later, O'Shea was going to be released. Uh, he he had, gotten, he had spent 17 years in prison and was going to be released early. And so Mary uh, did the unthinkable. She knew that for, for felons, for convicts, that it was difficult coming out of prison to find work, to find a place to live, to do all of these different things. And so Mary began the process of helping O'Shea to do that. She talked to her landlord, and O'Shea eventually moved in next door. Uh, They became next-door neighbors, and and that isn't where the story ends, and I just love how this story continues, because this is a story of God's transformative power in their lives. It's a story that, that shows that God is the one who can change us, who can make us whole again, who can invite us back to the way he created us to be. And so when O'Shea came to Mary and said that he thought that they needed to share their story with other people, Mary was kind of surprised. She didn't know exactly what to do. But she agreed. And I love the way that she talks about this whole process. She says In March of 2010, we gave O'Shea a welcome home party organized by my organization, some Catholic nuns from the hood, even some ex gang members from Chicago drove down to witness what was happening. When O'Shea told me that he wanted to share his story publicly with me so that he could help others, I couldn't believe that he wanted to do this. He is my spiritual son. It's not easy for us to stand next to each other again and again and share our story. But I say to other mothers that talking and sharing your story is the road to healing. In the language that we've been using this morning, what happened in Mary and O'Shea's life is not just healing, but being made whole again. It's God's transformative power entering into our lives and changing us, even in the midst of terrible circumstances, even when the cynicism is real and it's around us, and it's well-founded. Even in those situations, the story of Scripture tells us that God wants to change us. He wants to transform us. He wants to make us whole again. So last year, Mary was going to be married, and who else was going to walk her down the aisle but her son, O'Shea. You see, in their in their life story, Mary had lost a son, but because of God's power in her life, because of God's transformative power, she had gained a new one. And this is true not just in their story, not just in that extreme case, but it's true in our lives as well, that God has told us that he wants to make us new. He wants to reform and reshape us just like he wanted for Israel, just like he wanted for the people that Jeremiah prophesied to. God wants to make us whole again. And so this morning, this is the God that we worship. This is the God that I wish that you knew. It's the God who makes us whole again. It's the God who transforms us and makes us who we are created to be. And so this morning, our our elders and their wives are going to gather around the room. And if you would like prayer this morning, maybe there's something in your life that you've been cynical about. Maybe there's something in your life uh, that needs healing, needs transformation. Uh, maybe you need to be made whole again. I invite you to go to these men and women and pray with them as we uh, get ready to come back and worship. Maybe this morning what you need most is to experience God's transformation in your life. And if that's the case, I invite you to come. I'll be down front as we stand and worship together.